This podcast is brought to you by Stella Artois. When you're planning to enjoy everything Houston has to offer, especially all the great restaurants in our city, start with Estella. Whether you're going to eat with friends or solo, start with Estella. Stella Artois. Enjoy responsibly. Welcome to What's Eric Eating, Culture Map's bi-weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. This is the Thursday show where I talk to someone in the food world that I think you'll want to hear more from, and there's probably no better person for that than this week's guest. He is a founder of Thoroughfare Hospitality, a bar and restaurant group that owns Anvil, Refuge, Squabble, Better Luck Tomorrow, and Theodore Rex. Bobby Hugel, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for doing this. I should say welcome back to the show. I I, I looked it up. You were last on in March of 2018, which is kind of crazy because it's after you opened Better Luck Tomorrow, uh, but before Squabble, before Penny Quarter, uh, which came and went because of the pandemic uh, and Refuge. So I feel like we have a lot to catch up on. I feel like a lot has happened since then. <laughs> Most of it has been uh, interesting, to say the least. Well, let's let's start with uh, start with with your most recent piece of news, which is that you acquired the assets and the name for Catbirds, this kind of legendary Montrose dive bar that that occupies a space on Westheimer that you are actually one of the owners of the property. So we'll start with start with kind of why you were interested in acquiring Catbirds. Um, well, I don't know if I would say that I was interested because that might might suggest that we were interested in some type of change there. Um, it's just kind of an opportunity that came up because, like you mentioned, you know, we owned that property. We bought that property a few years back because it's right down the street from Anvil. Our like company offices between Anvil and Catbirds. Um, we have like a small little old uh, Montrose bungalow there that, that is our office. Um, and, you know, Catbirds had been struggling for a while. We obviously knew about that. Um, we re- renewed the lease with Catbirds a few years back, you know, trying to make sure that they were always going to be our tenants. And then I think that um, the prior owner for Catbirds had just reached a point where she was ready to move on with life. Um, and decided to close the bar. Um, and at that point in time, you know, because we had always wanted that space to continue being catbirds, it was kind of a question about, um, you know, what we were going to do to try and keep it as that bar. And so, you know, I, I went ahead and acquired the assets and the name so that we could maintain it as catbirds, which, you know, I think we were maybe a little gun shy to say initially, like, I don't know if we for sure want to call it catbirds, but just to, to be more formal about it. Yeah. We definitely want to reopen it as catbirds and continue that legacy and have the bar continue to be a very affordable neighborhood bar going forward. Okay. Well, that that's good news. I think for everybody who likes catbirds and has memories of drinking there, how did you, cause when, cause when you first sort of announced that you had done this, you you were you hadn't made that decision yet that you were going to keep it as catbirds. Yeah. How did you kind of come to that? Well, I, I guess that 
that that's kind of a, a way to see like what was going on with us. We just, that happened so suddenly um, everything in that situation. So for us to like go through that process and, and, you know, realize that, that Catbridge was on the verge of closing and be in the situation where we were trying to figure out what to do. I just kind of felt like I needed some time to go, what, what are we actually doing here? But it happened in such a quick public way. Um, you know, we had to say something, which is why I reached out to you. I was like, Hey, you know, this, this is happening. And I think some of the rumors around it are not necessarily accurate. We didn't really know what was going on either. We just knew that a, we were losing a tenant and B, you know, we, we were going to try and keep it as catbirds, but we didn't really know if, if us operating catbirds was the right choice, um, how people would feel about that. And I think it's, it's cool that people were like, maybe the guy that sells fancy cocktails down the street is not the right person to run an affordable neighborhood bar. So I just felt like we needed a pause for a second and figure out what was going on. Right. But I mean, we should say this is a bar, you know, well, um, maybe not even just as a landlord, but as a patron. I mean, this is, this is, this is a place that you're, you're a, a customer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's, it's funny. Some people, you know, m- might think of like people that work in the cocktail world as like only liking nice martinis and fancy drinks and stuff like that, which of course I do. Um, but I, I think like anybody that works in, in the industry as a whole has bars that are, places that they go when they have a long shift, when they've gotten off work. You know, I, I still work down the street at Amblin Refuge and work shifts. I just worked a shift, uh, you know, just a couple of days ago. And uh, when I got off, I wanted to go to Catbirds. It just wasn't open. Right. And so right. I think that, it, that places like that are like really functional places for those of us that work in the industry. And then in other ways, like they're just important parts of neighborhoods and every neighborhood needs bars like that. All right. So when you say that you're going to keep it as catbirds or or as an affordable neighborhood bar, what does that mean? I mean, how is that how is that going to manifest itself? Well, um, so you know, first, Peter Yonke, who is one of my best friends, who has worked with us forever, and I are going to partner on the bar. So Peter is going to be a co-owner with me, um, and we have been in there personally, the two of us, cleaning up catbirds, which. Every time I say that, people like have some dive notion that the bar was like, you know, would need a lot of work or something like that. Actually, the staff there that worked there was awesome. They kept the bar really clean. We've been kind of getting rid of some clutter that businesses naturally collect over time. But otherwise, we don't plan to change very much. We're not moving the bar. Um, I think we're getting rid of when you walk in the bar and go to the left, there's an extremely divey bathroom to the left um, that may or may not have been used only for bathroom purposes. <laughs> and that, we're we're kind of getting rid of that because we think we need some more storage space um, for the bar. But otherwise, like I I think we're repairing some rotten walls in the other bathrooms and maybe fixing a baseboard here or there. We're buying new furniture. The bar needed new furniture. The the old furniture was literally falling apart. Um, but otherwise, we're we're not really changing anything. I think when people come back to the bar, they will go. This is Catbirds, and they will be able to point out a few things that we changed. But for the most part, I think it's going to be the bar that they've known for for a very long time. It's been open since 1995. Before that, it has a history that preceded Catbirds as a bar. It was Dizzy's back in the day. It was Et Vu, um, which opened, I think, in 1982 as a wine bar. Um, and then they renamed that bar Cherryhurst Wine Bar because Et Vu might have been too obscure for 1980s mantras. 
Um, <laughs> so it's got a great history as a bar. We want to keep it uh, as a as a great neighborhood bar. Um, we want to keep the prices affordable. I found a menu from when Catbridge was open over the last year or so, and there was a $13 cocktail on it amongst other cocktails, which I understand why bars are trying to do that, but that's not the bar to us. It should be affordable. Um, we we really just want it to be the same thing that it's been for people for a very long time. Right. So so does that mean that Peter is going to be behind the bar in addition to being uh, a partner with you on it? Yeah, Peter's going to work some shifts there. Um, we, we're not sure entirely. You know, Peter. Peter is a jack of all trades. He has literally worked with me everywhere. He was the charcuterie manager when we opened Underbelly. He was a bartender. Yeah, right. in Yeah. Yeah. He right. He's cooked on. So. He's cooked on the line at, at Oxford at Theater Rex. I mean, he's yeah. He, he's truly a, an accomplished uh, human being. He's the most talented person that I know working in the industry. But I think he's happiest serving people drinks in like a very casual setting. So, do you? I, I mean, I know you've got some permits to get and a liquor license and all that. Do you have a sense of kind of when you expect Catbirds to reopen? We'd really like it to reopen in November before Thanksgiving. Like just so that we have some time, you know, before the holidays so that we can kind of just get to know the bar a little bit more and whatnot. Um, but we'll see how that goes. You know, you know how permitting works in the city. Um, yeah, fortunately, it, it, here we're not we're not touching the bar. We're not doing any work. So hopefully it should be quick. And then let's move on to, to Refuge, which you opened last year as a cocktail bar. And, and now you've got kind of a, you know, the upstairs cocktail bar and then the downstairs coffee shop that's only been open for a couple of months i just kind of start at the beginning i mean how did you how did you decide that that what anvil that that building needed was a second cocktail bar man that's tough i i think covid decided that for us right <laughs> you know it's it's like you said it's been a while since we talked and um i mean really the the short story is that when COVID hit, we were still operating Pastry War. And then above Pastry War, we had Tonka Sparrow. Um, and then COVID, more than any other area, basically decimated downtown. I mean, most of the bars that I know down there, the bars that my friends own and stuff like that, they they just closed. I mean, we, we didn't open Pastry War for 15 months, whereas our other businesses, we tried to keep active and tried to keep going um, because they were in neighborhoods that, you know, they had more of a, a, of a chance of making it. So our lease goes up mid-COVID. We reopened Pastry War for a few months to see how it was going to go. Um, but our lease was up, just really bad timing for that. Uh, and so we had to make a decision about whether we were going to renew the lease or not. We decided not to. So Tongue Cut Sparrow was basically just this way for us to pay rent in the space behind Anvil. Um, and so we kept doing that. But we knew at some point we would actually have to make a decision about what we wanted to do with Tongue Cut Sparrow, which is a bar that I really like. I liked it downtown more than I liked it in the the Montrose temporary space. Um, and so I just really couldn't see Tongue Cut Sparrow moving to Montrose permanently in the same way. Um, but I also think that Houston needs some bars that are more like Tongue Cut Sparrow or what eventually turned into Refuge. I think it needs a place to celebrate where you can book a reservation, where you can get good service, where you can get a nice cocktail. Um, and I don't think that every space needs to be like that. It's a weird thing to be talking about right after we just finished talking about catbirds. Um, but I, I think that hi, hi low, Bobby, a bar that. for every occasion. I mean, come on. Yeah, is, uh... exactly, exactly. Um, 
but anyways, I, I, I just couldn't see Tunkout Sparrow moving to Montrose, even though we did it, you know, temporarily out of necessity for a while. And then it was like, so what do we do instead? And, you know, um, Refuge made sense because I do think that when Tunkut was downtown, we learned some lessons about the yin and the yang, so to speak, between Tunkut and, um, and Pastry War, right? And how those two bars interacted and whatnot. And so I kind of thought that we could maybe do the same thing with Anvil and Refuge. We could have Anvil continue to be the neighborhood cocktail bar that it's been for almost 15 years now, but we could have Refuge be kind of a cherry on the top of that I think that that worked out that we hoped it would. I mean, talk a little kind of about the the atmosphere at Refuge and and kind of what you're trying to create there because it it does have like a very different atmosphere than Anvil and it's it's a very different experience. Yeah, that that area in the building is really interesting. So way back in the day when the Daiquiri factory opened, I think the Daiquiri factory opened in 1982, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, that portion of the building, the, the upstairs there, was kind of the game room. There were pool tables, things like that. And it was kind of just a, a loft area. Um, and then uh, when when we decided to try and, you know, turn that space into a, a nicer cocktail bar, um, we really wanted the, the room to kind of lean into some of the qualities about it that were weird. It has really, really low ceilings. There's no windows. Um, even when we put the window in for for the downstairs space, the really large window that we put in, um, that that was the first time that that space had gotten a window. Back in the day, it was a Bridgestone Firestone store, and the area that Refuge is in was like kind of a tire storage loft area, so to speak. Um, and so we just kind of wanted to lean into it. And I think that happens in other cities that – um, maybe we all romanticize a little bit as Houstonians, like cities like New York, um, Chicago, you know, Seattle, San Francisco. You've got some like smaller urban cities where you get smaller bars because of the density of those cities. We don't really have that in Houston. We kind of just knock down things and then build whatever we want to suit our needs. And I kind of like spaces that instead are like, how do we make this work for a function? And so I think Refuge does that. I think it leans into the like, quirks of its small little tight space in a way that feels different than other bars in the city i mean it's been it's been highly successful i feel like i you know i see people there on my various social media feeds all the time right i i and it's a, and it's a good crew i mean you, you found a really talented group of bartenders to to keep it moving yeah we have really really special people there um, you know, KKR head bartenders just decided to stay with us for another year. So that's that's a, a real blessing because, you know, I always tell her that, like, as long as she wants to come to work for us, we win because she's just such a big animated personality. She gives so much of herself to the space and to the guests. And I think that the rest of the staff has really, like, absorbed a lot of that energy and that service style as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that if you're going to run a bar that's going to be limited in capacity and it's going to be ambitious it's got to start with the people who work there every day more than anything else and we're really fortunate and then tell me a little about the coffee shop because it, it you know you've been using that downstairs space for kind of private events and now you've reopened it to the public how um i mean you're only a couple of months in but how's it going so far it's going great and we still use it as an event space we just had a big wedding reception there on saturday um and so we kind of just like want to keep using it that way we've, we've 
you know, thought that that was the right choice after we opened the upstairs cocktail bars that downstairs we could do events. Um, but we also were kind of like, well, why don't we just serve coffee again in the morning? Uh, it, it's just sitting there. Um, and so we, we've started serving coffee. Uh, we have like a small cocktail menu. Um, we have wine available uh, for there or to go. So just a really, really simple space, um, really modest um, goals and, you know, trying to trying to keep it simple and just have it be something that can service Manchester in the daytime. And it's been great. I'm really excited about the heat breaking. I think all of us are for so many reasons. Uh, but we have such a great patio there, too. Um, and it really hasn't been utilized yet, which has been cool for us because it gave us a chance to kind of warm up a little bit. And I always like opening new things at slower times if we can. So that's been really good. But when the patio gets going, I think it's going to be a really great place to like grab a glass of wine. Um, one of the things that I love about Montrose is that the people who live in Montrose have really irregular schedules. People are off on Tuesdays and Wednesdays and things like that. And it's really distinct. The Heights doesn't feel that way. Um, but Montrose has always felt that way. So I, I like that we have a space that people can come to early on their day off if they want to grab a glass of wine or right when they finish work, um, but at the same time has coffee. And I think all of us who are bartenders and you know work at night in that building love that there's coffee back in the morning. <laughs> yeah, I will say, I mean, I found myself, I, I had an appointment in the Heights and then I had another appointment in Montrose. One of them wrapped up a little too soon to go straight to the other. And so I found myself at refuge, like eating a croissant and sipping a highball uh, just cause like, I didn't, I didn't really want a cup of coffee, right? Like I didn't, I didn't want to go to a traditional coffee shop and, and it, it just, it served my needs like very, very nicely in that moment in a way that like a, a it, I didn't need a whole restaurant. You know what I mean? Like I didn't need, yeah I didn't need a meal. I just needed like, I needed someplace I could spend like a quiet 45 minutes goofing off on my phone. And it, and it, it served me very well in that moment. Yeah. I think that we're starting to see like some restaurants and bars in the city open with like maybe less explicit in intentions if that makes sense right where people are like we're here for you in whichever way you want to need us and i think that's the sign of like a food scene kind of maturing a little bit um and that's like you know kind of getting density in the city people choosing to come to independent businesses instead of a starbucks or something like that i just kind of feel like those off-peak hours are are really important to like a city's food culture and i think that that's starting to kind of fill out a little bit yeah i think that's right and and i think you know you talked about sort of post-covid i mean everybody's work schedule is or a lot of people's work schedules are really flexible and so you know having that place where it's like oh i could go you know i can get out of the house for a couple of hours and and have wi-fi and a plug and still and get a snack and a, a cup of coffee and and have it be kind of a relaxed environment or like I saw, you know, three young women who looked like college students that were collaborating on some project or, you know, that's what it, that's what it looked like as an outside observer. You know, I, I think spaces like that are really valuable and, and, you know, you could, you could talk about a place like black hole or, or maybe some of these other kind of coffee mm -hmm. shops that are a little more flexible and fill that need. But I, I just feel like you can never, you can never really have too many of them. Yeah, I agree. Agora especially is like my favorite place. If I get a chance, somebody's like, I want to grab coffee with you. At first, I think about whether or not they care what the coffee tastes like. <laughs> and if they do, <laughs> I'll take them to like a nice coffee shop or a coffee shop that like 
is really coffee focused. And if they're just more casual about it, I'll go to Agora, which doesn't mean that the coffee at Agora is not not great. I always find it to be tasty. It's just like it's been doing that for Manchas for such a long time. If we need food, we'll go to Brazil. Like there's so many like classic staples on that street that I've been going to for such a long time um, that were like important to me when, you know, I was working full time behind the bar at Anvil. Uh, and they're they're still there, and we're just trying to like be a new generation, but not replace the generation that preceded us. Right. The the whole you know rising tide, right? Like that Montrose remains like this very dynamic dining neighborhood of high and low, old and new. Yeah, I mean it's it's an exciting time, right? Because it feels like you know with all these mixed use developments and everything, there's there's a lot of new stuff in the neighborhood, but at the same time, you know it's hard to beat like brunch at Brazil on a Sunday morning. Yeah, I, I think the only constant thing about Manchester is that people have been complaining about change in Manchester forever. It's the only <laughs> thing about that neighborhood that's remained the same. But that's great, though. I mean, any neighborhood like that, that has like defenders, that, that people feel really passionate about what its identity is and the spaces there, those are signs of a good neighborhood. Yeah, right. I mean, right. Montrose, Montrose is ruined or Montrose is over or Montrose is, is whatever. And it's like, I I miss the days when the the pride parade was down Westheimer, right? And it, and it screwed up the neighborhood all weekend. Like there was, there was a, uh, or the Westheimer street festival such you know, shut down uh, lower Westheimer for, for an afternoon. But, but at the same time, you know, I, I like this version of Montrose, right? I like, I like being able to go to a place like toasted coconut or Candente or, or even, you know, Pizarro's pizza, you know, that, that are all relative newcomers uh, to the area. Yeah. I, it's interesting. I, I, I've been doing like a lot of deep diving and like the the archives that U of H has, um, particular for the LGBTQ uh, magazines and like kind of reading about what establishments were around and, you know, just kind of going through that. And even like reading a little bit about the establishments that were around in Montrose that, that some of the gay bars actually pushed out, right? Which was, you know, there were, there were some, you know... It, it was it was largely a Mexican neighborhood, and then a lot of the gay bars actually pushed out some of those establishments. And you know, we we've certainly been accused of doing the same thing, um, especially when you know I was a partner on Blacksmith, and when we opened Blacksmith, uh, which was where Mary's was at. Um, I, I think you know, really, when I was, I want to say I was like 27, 28 when we did that project, uh, which I think was like way too young and way too immature to really understand that moment um it, it, that bar was like the most famous gay bar in montrose uh by far and it had closed you know somebody was else was going to buy it. it you know we had done that really because we needed the parking for underbelly and hay merchant um which the the city kind of messed with us and, and we were forced into that situation but if we hadn't bought that somebody would have torn down mary's i think we were the only option that was bidding on it to keep the building where it was at. But like, we just, I, I don't think that I really understood the moment. Somebody put the mural back on the wall at Mary's. I don't remember who this person was. I've lost contact with them. Uh, if they read this, I would, I would love to, to get back in touch with them. And someone from the city told us that we could put the mural back up, but that we would need to take it down. Um, and I think now the person I am now would just be like, you know, go fuck yourself. We're not taking the mural down, but I kind of got bullied into <laughs> taking it down. Right. Um, there were, there were people that were looking for like ashes of, of partners that they had lost during the AIDS epidemic in the eighties that they had buried behind Mary's. I like went through that property with people with metal detectors trying to find them. 
um, all of that. But, and I, I just don't think that I really knew how to handle that moment. And I, I don't know that we messed it up, but I, I certainly think that I like was incapable of really appreciating the sensitivity of what was surrounding that. And I think that that's been a big lesson for me as like, we think about what to do with catbirds and how to handle our businesses in Montrose in general. Uh, I do think that that neighborhood is going to continue to change. I think that people are justified in lamenting, you know, that change. But at the same time, I think what's cool about that neighborhood is that it's always been full of independent businesses that were always pushing something progressive, whether it was like social progression or like culinary progression or whatnot. And I, I think that Montrose is maybe in a weird place right now, but I know that it'll come out of that place with like a strong voice and ambitions like it always has. Yeah. I think, you know, I think you kind of see that like Montrose Lectural's uh, Instagram account that's kind of pushing back against, you know, some of these new developments, right. Whether that's uh Montrose collective or, you know, we don't, you know, no one's, no one's quite said exactly what's going to go on the corner where, you know, half price books and three, six, nine and specs used to be, but uh, you know, I think there's going to be like a collective, fit for older residents once you know the extent of that mixed use project is revealed but but i i think you're right you know as long as you know as long as there's polys as long as there's brazil as long as there's tattoo shops and you know as long as there's guadalupana it's like some some remnant of like older mantras will still will still remain and then it's it's really up to the people who live in the area and care about those places to to keep them going yeah, as long as there's Guadalupana. <laughs> like, that's the standard for me. If Guadalupana ever closes, I'm moving out of Montrose. I've lived in Montrose m- most of the years since we opened Anvil. I lived a- above our bars downtown for maybe a year. Uh, but otherwise, I've I've lived in Montrose. And if Guadalupana ever goes away, I went away as well. It's like, <laughs> it, it, it's it's need to be a Montrose resident. Yeah, it's... Uh... Yeah, there's just something about, uh, you know, a vampiro and and a couple of tamales or uh, eggs divorzada or whatever that that uh, it it just it wouldn't be it wouldn't be the same neighborhood without that place. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so let me so let me ask you about one other thing. Well, or at least one other thing. You have said uh, that you are looking to expand better luck tomorrow to a second location. You know, you hired uh, Michael O'Connor as the executive chef. You've got uh, Anna Wilkins as the GM there. Tell me, tell me kind of what the, what the status of, uh, well, it, you also just renovated the the Heights location uh, pretty extensively. So, so talk to me kind of about the state of BLT. Uh, like you mentioned, we've just renovated BLT. We're kind of like 90% of the way through that. Um, when you come in, a month from now, you'll see some additional changes. Like we, we, a portion of the bar is going to be outside. The staff will have new uniforms, which are fun shirts. You know, um, we've redone like all of the, the patio outside, new furniture. Uh, we've just put up like a really nice awning. Um, we laid brick on the patio on sixth street. We have new landscaping everywhere. So yeah, we've, we've done a bunch of stuff. It's a really old building. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know why um, we've only found ourselves in old buildings. I've never done a project, including back when I was Chris's partner and stuff like that. I've never done a project that uh, was in a building that opened after 1960, which I think is pretty hard to find in Houston. Um, 
And so it is a very, very old gas station that is not the easiest place to uh, work in. And so we've tried to make it feel nicer. But all of this to say is, is part of our intention to try and move that concept to where we think it will need to be to have more than one location. Uh, and so we want to open a second BLT. We got really close on a couple of things over the last year, but they just didn't feel right for one reason or another. Um, and I'm kind of glad that we waited because I think that all of the changes that we've done with BLT now are the right changes that are going to help making us, that are going to help make a second location make more sense. And so uh, we have done that to make current BLT better than it's ever been before. And I really feel that way. I think it's awesome. Um, Justin and the team have done an incredible job with the food menu, which is larger than it's ever been. Uh, Anna and Sarah continue to work on cocktails there and do a great job with those. So we're really, really excited about where it's at. And now I feel really confident about us finding a second location and going to find something that, that is going to feel like the, the right step um, for that business. Yeah. I mean, I remember when it opened in 2017 and you were very sort of explicit about this is a bar, not a restaurant. I mean, looking at that food menu now, you know, you know, shrimp cocktail and chicken liver mousse and crab cakes and, you know, salmon steak frites and a chicken pie art. I mean, it seems more like a restaurant than it, than it's ever been. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. I, and, and I think that we're okay with that. When you open a new business, I think that you open a business and you have an idea in your mind of how people will use it. Right. And if you, if you don't, you probably shouldn't open it. But one of the things about like, opening a bar is you need people to recognize it as a bar so they they will come during happy hour they will come late at night they will come when they finish dinner and i i think that if you serve food alongside of a bar concept it can really tip into the restaurant sphere in a way that kind of upsets that balance and if that happens initially it can be a problem like people are you know working for tips and stuff like that they need 10 hours of, of people walking in, not four, which is like really what you get at a restaurant is you'll get four hours. So I think we were really defensive of that initially. We still sell way more, you know, alcohol than we do food. So like by any measure, I still think that we would technically, you know, be considered a bar, but COVID changed that for us. You know, when COVID happened, we had to figure out how BLT was going to survive. Every one of our businesses had its own strategy and, you know, different circumstance and different neighborhood. And so we, we opened for lunch to kind of help us continue to do service and whatnot. And that definitely forced us into more of a restaurant direction. And, you know, we tried to continue doing lunch after COVID. Um, but lunch in Houston, I think, is a very tough thing to make work. Um, and so I, I think that what we've done recently is, is a lot about us resetting what BLT needs to be for the future and so yes i think it's it's definitely more restauranty i think the food is awesome like really i i just i i do not think that we have ever had better food there um far and away like the the best menu that we've ever had I mean, michael gets a lot of credit for that um as does she chef b like it just it's really really good uh, but i still think at its core it's still a bar yeah i mean i i have to say i i know that um you replaced the uh, the the party melt with a with a burger, and I, I haven't been in to try the burger yet. You haven't been in to try the burger. I haven't tried the burger yet. Okay, I dare you to give me a better burger in the city 
you can get after nine o'clock. I will, I'll, I'll temper it. Right. Like, right. After, after nine, mm, I really like that Nancy's burger though. And they are open pretty late. Yeah. That, that okay. Nancy's burger or the, uh, I mean, it's been a while since I've had a burger at Rudyard's, but I remember it fondly. And I then, just had a... And how late can I get a smash burger at Toasted Coconut? Because that would be on the list for me somewhere. Oh, I love that burger. I love it. But anyways, I, especially if it's a Monday. We, right. we talked right. so much about all the changes that have happened like since COVID and stuff like that. The biggest loss to the city of Houston has been Mondays. Just Monday as a whole. There's nowhere to go. We're the... We're, the third or fourth largest city in the country. And it's, it's, I really have trouble if it's Monday after eight o'clock finding somewhere to grab a drink and a bite. And so next time that you're thinking about a Monday, I want you to come in and have the burger because it is, <laughs> it's great. It's great. And all, all things considered, it's really affordable too. Um, and I think that, you know, Justin who loves burgers is very proud of it. Well, yeah. I, I mean, 14 bucks seems pretty reasonable to me in, in this age of, you know, cheeseburgers that cost, you know, 20 and $25. So yeah, I think it's ridiculous that we're calling a $14 burger reasonable, but here we are. (laughs) We're we're trying our best on our end. So, yeah. Um, And, and then, uh, you know, the other thing that I, when I stopped by recently, there were TVs on the walls. I, I, I could barely believe it. Oh, come on. You know, we, (laughs) I think that you and I gambled like on uh fantasy football once like at some point i think we we're in a league together or something so you, yeah, you know we did, like we did we did we did DraftKings head to head uh once that's right for fun yeah i and i and if i remember you won <laughs> yes i i'm i maybe you know who who can who can say bobby it's been so long <laughs> um there's a there's uh, a yeah. very famous like uh anvil and friends bartenders fantasy football league that that uh i would I would be thrilled to be invited to participate in, but I, uh, I know it's not in the cards for me. Well, you know, I'll be honest. I, I think it kind of deteriorated over COVID. It was a, it was another COVID casualty where none of oh, us no. had had money for fantasy football or really the time to do any of that. Uh, but we love sports. I mean, you know that Justin and I are big sports fans. Uh, Justin is like a a a suffering Texans fan, um, and I, I think that. Uh, you know, we we never had TVs in any of our places until now, and I think that that's part of us, like maybe moving BLT to center just a little bit, so we can do more than one location. Um, and frankly, I'm really tired of losing money on the Astros. This is this is the primary <laughs> motivator for us. Is every fall for like a while now, the Astros have just crushed our our business, and I think it reached a point where I was like, okay this is not a fluke. We're going to have to find some way to have one of our places be active uh, during Astros playoffs times so that we're not just operating at a total loss. Um, and they will also have uh, TVs at Capritz. Capritz has had four TVs for, I don't know how long. Um, and, and we'll keep that up there too. Cause I, I do think like a neighborhood bar should also be a place where you can catch the game. Um, and so I think that, that both of those places will have that, but nowhere else. Right. Yeah. It wouldn't, it, a TV at Anvil or, you know, it, it wouldn't make sense at Refuge. Yeah. No, it, it wouldn't. Um, all right. So, I mean, we're running a little long, but, but I, I know one of the other things we've sort of been talking about informally is, is the price of cocktails in the city. And, you know, I've, I'm, I'm all over the place and, and I, you know, I feel like the, the days of sub $10 cocktails are, are gone and and 
you know, even, even like the, you know, what used to be kind of the $12 cocktail is kind of the standard for a, a nice drink is now the $15 cocktail. And I'm seeing, you know, 18, 19, $20 cocktails on menus. You've, you've really held the line at your places, right? I mean, I think most of, most of the drinks at, at Anvil and BLT are, are in that 10 to 12 kind of range. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I was talking to my friend, I don't think he'll mind, I mentioned this, Benji Mason the other day, and we were talking about how ridiculous we think cocktail prices are in the city. Um, I, when we had to take cocktails to 13 at Anvil, cause you know, we're dealing with inflation issues just like anybody. Uh, I, I really didn't like that. But the higher you take your cocktail price, the less diversity you have in your space, right? There's just less people who can afford to come in. And it really changes the kind of bar that you're operating. Um, and, I, and I think that we've always tried to be pretty price sensitive. You know, I, again, I, I think a $14 burger and a $13 cocktail are still kind of ridiculous if you're asking me. But that's just kind of what we're working in. But I think that every time we've moved our prices, it was because we had to, not because we wanted to. I think other places in the city, and I don't want to use any specific names, but I think that people are taking this moment of inflation as a chance to say, what can we charge versus what do we have to charge? And I really feel like you can feel a difference in places. Like you can go to some places and feel like, the prices there because people feel like they need to. And then you can go to other places and it feels like, well, this is just the market rate. A cocktail should cost $16. And I do not think that our cocktails should cost the same in Houston as they do in New York. I think that's ridiculous. We're not paying the same in rent. We don't have the same labor pressure, all of these different reasons. But for whatever reason, that's pretty commonplace in the city right now. And, and this is my least favorite thing, Eric. A double digit happy hour. It is ridiculous to me. I'm sorry if any of my friends own bars out there that are running double digit happy hours. $10 is not a happy hour price. And I see it all the time. There's nothing happy about that. It's a sad hour. $10, that's ridiculous. It's not a happy hour. Well, it is It is um, if, they're, if they're 15 or 16 normally, right? Like it's a nice discount. No, no. You cannot have a double digit happy hour and call it happy hour. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's just, that's ridiculous to me. <laughs> um, but I, I don't know that. There are a lot of reasons why prices are going up in the city, in particular with bars like liquor liability insurance in the state of Texas has skyrocketed. It's, it's you know, people are talking about all these different things. But one of the biggest issues is like liability insurance in the state of Texas has gone. When we opened Anvil, it was like maybe like, I know this is getting too much into the minutia, but like 1% of our total sales. Now it's like 3.5% of our total sales, right? Um, and if you're thinking about that, like a, a good neighborhood bar, you know, a place where, you know, people might work there for a, for a long time where you would have regulars, they might make 15% of what they sell. So if you think about insurance taking 3% of total sales, it's like 20% of your profits. And everybody is struggling with this issue. And, and liability insurance is really important. It's what takes care of like staff in the event that they overserve someone, which is not a great part of our industry, but it's it's something that we have to be conscious of and whatnot. And it's just, I think bars are under more pressure than they've ever been for distinct reasons that maybe maybe people are aware of when it comes to restaurants. But I still don't think a 16 to $17 cocktail is the answer unless you're doing something really special. I know we, we talked about you, you like to go to Catbirds. Are there any places you've been recently or, or over the last couple of years that you you feel like you're kind of delivering a really great experience other than places you own that, that you appreciate? Yeah. I mean, um, 
when when I moved back to Houston, I worked at Benji's and then I worked at Beavers and then I worked at Amble. Um, but the, the I lived really close to 13 Celsius, and so I've always loved 13. Um, Kevin, my old business partner, met his wife there when we would you know go have a couple drinks and whatnot. Um, and I really I I still love 13 to this day. I just think it's better than it's ever been. And I've just really noticed like how much effort the staff there and Adele and everybody is putting into that place. And I, I really, really like it. So it's not a new place, but it, it's an old place that I think is just like hitting all new levels. And it's busy all the time and it always feels good. And it doesn't matter the day of the week, uh, which I think is a really great thing about bars. Um, it's like, do they always feel good? Are they always reliable for you? Uh, I also really like Clarkwood. Um, you know, Clarkwood is, is, a a nicer trendier cocktail bar and i don't i don't mean that in a bad way i mean it in a good way um but i, I like clarkwood a lot because it feels distinct it, it has a different perspective I, I think another thing about a bar is when you go to it you should always feel like you somehow get to know the owner or the personality behind a bar even if you didn't meet them um and i feel like you know army and mason you know mason in particular like it's just it's it's so female forward. I think that she has a really distinct idea um, about what she wants the space to feel like every day. And I, and I like that it feels new and has a different voice. Um, and, and I just, re- I like the staff there a lot. They're really nice. They handle the volleyball on the weekends um, and it feels really different. Yeah. And there's an excitement about going there, right? There's like a, like if you're dressed up and you've had a nice dinner at, you know, someplace in the neighborhood and you, you want to drink afterwards. I, I think it's, Refuge is on that list. Uh, the Lounge at March is on that list. But but if you want something with like a little more energy, I think Clarkwood does that really well. Yeah, and it's hard to find places in the city that have energy that are still nice, that don't feel entirely like a nightclub. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's cool that we're starting to like have some spaces like that that are a little smaller and have that energy and feel that way. They don't have to be a club at the same time. Well... Is there anything else you want to discuss that I haven't asked you about? Um, I don't think so. I think we, how was your dinner at Squabble? I saw that you were there. Oh, my dinner at Squabble was outstanding. Of course, because it was prepared by the Culture Map Tastemaker Award Chef of the Year winner, Mark Clayton. What what could be better than that? Was he in house that night? I can't remember what he was. Yeah, no, I was there. I was there on a Friday night uh, because we were going to a concert at Heights Theater and it was a good opportunity to kind of, check in because I hadn't been since uh well since Mark one. Uh and I know he, yeah. he he put up a new menu with a whole bunch of new stuff on it. So I mean yeah. I I you know I I got sort of made fun of on Instagram because I, I do that, you know, my favorite things I ate this month posts and and someone was like, there's never any vegetables. And you know, so I've been <laughs> like I've been like seeking out in August. I've been like seeking out like I'm gonna find at least one vegetable dish to put up uh in the carousel. And that uh, summer squash with the peach puree or the pickled peaches and the corn puree. And then that veggie lasagna that he must sear, like just the, from the texture of it and the way it, it was, it was prepared. Like it must be sliced and then seared uh, when it served. Cause it was crispy. Um, yeah. It was so good. And like, not that I didn't, not that I didn't love the fried shrimp or the beef tartare or some of the other stuff that we ate, but like to, to walk out of that restaurant going, that may be, the best veggie lasagna i've had ever or at least in a really long time and and for it not to be like a kind of traditional like it didn't it didn't eat kind of sloppy like a traditional you know like my grandma made it lasagna 
Um, I was just really impressed by that. And and I've been I've been on a run of kind of eating around the heights. You know, I've been to June a couple of times. I've been to Cultivari recently. I think I think if Squabble isn't, you know, some of it comes down to personal taste, but for me, I think Squabble is probably my my favorite restaurant in the Heights. Or if I were gonna do the arrogant food writer thing, I'd say it's the best restaurant in the Heights. Um, but you know, I think it's I think it's right up there with, with any restaurant in the city right now. Ah, that's great to hear. Yeah, I love the lasagna too. It it's the we changed it a little bit when we did the menu change um this last spring. Uh, but but keeping lasagna on the menu was the one thing that we said that we we needed to keep in addition to the mussels toast because uh, Mark just it's it's a point of pride with him and and you know Mark he's he's more soft spoken than most chefs he's he's so humble he's such a hard worker he's such a great guy uh, he takes pride I think in the small things that he cooks and that lasagna in particular the way it's layered everything I think a lot of people would miss it um, and I I, I liked it that was such a great dish for you because it's, it's something that we're all, you know, we're, we're proud of for him. It's, it's his food and, you know, everything he puts into it uh, is just a reflection on how hard he works. And that dish in particular, I think is a good example of that. All right. Well, what do you want to, I, I mean, there's so many different social media pages to follow. What do you want to, what do you want to plug? What do you want people to, to keep track of? Oh, I, I don't know. <laughs> they, they can just find me on Instagram at Bobby underscore Hugel, H E U G E L. Bobby, thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, absolutely, Eric. Thanks for having me. You can follow me on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week.